This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. A very common statement I hear is, quote, we're practicing the bundle. We have really cut down our benzodiazepine use lately, unquote. I absolutely celebrate that important step as benzodiazepines consistently worsen almost all outcomes. Nonetheless, avoiding benzodiazepines is a key but small part of the C in the ABCDF bundle. The C is for choice of sedation and analgesia. That choice is not just what kind of sedation, but whether or not to give it, whether or not there is an indication for it as well as what doses to give and how long to give it. John Devlin joins us now to share his expertise on the C of the ABCDF bundle. Kelly, first of all, thanks very much for having me on your podcast. I really enjoyed the presentation you delivered at the recent annual meeting of the American Delirium Society, and it's really great to meet you in person and to participate in your podcast. Um, I've been a critical care pharmacist for almost 30 years now, and um, currently I'm a Professor of Pharmacy at Northeastern University, a critical care pharmacist in the medical ICU at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And then I have research appointments in the pulmonary critical care division at Harvard Medical School. Um, and so I've kind of seen it all, you know, from first uh, rounding as a pharmacist um, in the late 1990s, early, two th- early 1990s, um, sorry, rounding in the ICU in the early 1990s, where, you know, patients were just um, incredibly deeply sedated. Um, They weren't mobilized. Um, You know, we didn't even use sedation scales, if you can believe it. Um, They really hadn't been invented. And, um, you know, people would just sort of wake patients up suddenly trying to wean them. We didn't really do daily wake-ups or sedation, you know, SPTs. And um, and then everybody would be surprised when the patient sort of had ICU psychosis. We didn't screen for delirium. We did screen for pain. And patients um, would, when they had ICU psychosis, the word delirium really wasn't used at all. It hadn't really even, to be honest, really been invented. And um, we would just give boatloads of haloperidol. It was crazy. And we never really thought about where our patients were going. Like, we just thought about... You know, if they survive their critical illness, that um, that that was really the big goal of care, which is, you know, obviously, if you talk to any patient, Part of it. they do. They do want to survive. Um, but we were really thinking about their post-ICU trajectory. And then it's really funny. Families had little engagement. You know, they would be invited to the ICU for a few minutes, but they weren't really engaged at the bedside. And um, they certainly weren't. You know, physicians would give them updates, but, you know, they they didn't have a lot of contact with the rest of the members of the interprofessional team. And, and I think everything was very, very physician led and and driven. Um, and so in, in academic studies, where I've always worked, um, this could actually lead to a lot of um, changes in care patterns, even between different attending um, intensivists that might be covering a medical ICU for a week or two. Um, 
there just, there just sort of wasn't all these things happening. It was really, everything was, people were just waiting for the physician to say to do things. So, I mean, there was just so many barriers and problems with the care, the model, and our approach to, to everything we were doing. But, you know, I think people knew there was issues, but we, you know, 30 years ago, we just didn't really know what to do. So you're one of the early pioneers. You've watched this all unfold and even one of the leaders in this. I mean, you've been president of American Delirium Society. Um, you have been participating in this research. You've really gotten your head above water when it comes to sedation practices. So what inspired your recent article in the Lancet Journal that you co-authored with Dr. Del Needham and who was the other author? Oh, it's uh, Matthias um, Eicherman, who's a um, anesthesiologist. So, um, who and both both Dale and Matthias are just fabulous researchers in their own right, and have really changed the paradigm for practice in the ICU yeah. with all their great research. And um, you know, I think uh, you know, for years um, since you know, really, I would say two thousand one, um, JP Cress's landmark daily interruption study that was published in New England Journal of Medicine. Um, you know, it it really had a profound effect uh, in the academic world because people saw that you could just, you know, wake people up, reduce sedation, and it didn't really affect outcomes, either bedside safety or increased cardiac ischemia or any of the things that we always would feel if we reduced or stopped sedation would happen. And, you know, the, the long and short story of all this is that it, it got a lot of traction in terms of people reading it, but then when people try to do this in their um, individual ICUs on a large scale basis, it didn't really fly. And, you know, there's just a lot of barriers. And I think what happened is we never really um, thought about how ICU teams work, how important the ICU professional team is, um, what goal, what are really the goals of sedation? Like just because someone's mechanically ventilated doesn't need mean they need um continuous sedation we, we never, never really that. yeah we never really did never... we always thought yeah we always just thought you know oh the patient's um intubated going to be intubated or intubated we need to get you know midazolam or propofol or dexamethasone. we need a continuous sedative and often they must be in pain or discomfort so why don't we just throw in a continuous infusion of fentanyl there and then we don't have then the, there's no way the patient will um you know, be in pain, they won't remember things, which we realize ICU memories are really important. They won't be afraid. And, and we just felt that, you know, the patient really didn't have, they were too sick to participate in their own care. We didn't even really even think about mobility. And I mean, we knew ICU acquired weakness was an issue, but we're just like, what can we really do here? You know, so patients generally would just be in bed and restraints and wasn't until they're extubated and far down their critical care trajectory that we would, um, you know, get them moving and move to a chair and do all those things. But there was days. And and the other thing is we used a lot of continuous neuromuscular blockers. So, you know, that was another reason it would even drive more, um, you know, sedation strategies. Um, there was a little bit of a fear too, that, um, you know, really bad things would happen, even though J.P. Crest showed that it wouldn't in his studies. And, you know, the ICU back then, there was a little bit of a, you know, like there was a lot of pressure put on nurses, not for bad things to happen. And mm -hmm. the nurses, you know, might see the benefits of 
you know, more of a more wakeful patient, but they also were clearly aware of the potential, you know, sequelae that would happen if their patient accidentally self-extubated or fell to bed or or any of these bad things. And so um, there was a lot of pressure put on nurses, I think, for them to, we didn't really give them the ability to keep patients wakeful. Um, it, and Right, we still uh, had this automatic sedation, and then we were trying to move nurses into turning it off sooner. So then right. nurses got to deal with the delirious patient that are at risk of all of the harmful events. We never, we still, we're not really giving nurses the chance to have a patient that is awake, strong, calm, compliant, free of delirium. We still lock them into this, what Dr. Ely calls a delirium factory. And so it increases everything for the nurse. You're absolutely right. And the other thing is we never really asked nurses what they really wanted to do. Like I did some research really looking at barriers to daily interruption and and with nurses and, you know, I really found out some surprising things. And, you know, any other thing that we were um, sort of realizing is that nurses wanted their patients to sleep at night. So there was a real very diurnal variation where nurses, if they were going to wake patients up, it was just a temporary thing during like the daytime, they would be much more deeply sedated at night. And then, you know, generally it was just the focus on let's just wake them up to try to do an SBT. And and what we realized is I, I was involved in a Canadian Creole trials group study where we did um, hourly sedation protocol with or without daily interruption. It was a large study. It was published in JAM about um, 10 years ago. And what we really found through this study and, you know, I enrolled about 60 patients in it and talking to the nurses, they actually really liked the protocol. And nurses were quite willing. And the protocol really involved nurses keeping the patients at the goal RAS, which was generally light sedation. So RAS of minus one, minus two, which is actually, you know, in this day and age, probably too, too sedated for most patients because they don't even need to be sedated. But back yes, thank years you. ago, that was that was a that was probably a reasonable goal when most patients were kept in a coma. And and nurses actually didn't mind making small changes. So basically they would increase or decrease the propofol by like 10 to 20 mics per minute every hour until they reach the goal RAS. And and so patients and nurses, and we really worked with our night nurses, and it was amazing how nurses day and night had really no problem. Sometimes they would wean it right off, which was fabulous. Other times they... You know, they'd keep the patient at 10 mics of propofol, but the patient was very arousable. You know, you could just um, stimulate them or you could just turn it off and they'd be wakeful within a few minutes. And so we really found um, that the um, patients did much, much better on the morning SBTs. They were wakeful. We were able to, the families would come in. They're like, wow, I love the patients and the families would love to be engaged with each other and we actually started doing as we brought more physiotherapists in 10 years ago we started doing a lot more mobility and just everything everybody was happier and and it's funny patients would actually tell us when they're intubated they would tell the nurses don't resedate me again or don't make this deep sedation again i love being able to engage with thing and you know very very rarely a patient would say can you sedate me a little more i'm kind of a scared i want to have a nap or something that would happen but most of the time it's like they don't resedate me and so that really was an important paradigm that that really thing. And then obviously we had COVID and, you know, it that's set us back a little bit, I think. But now we're kind of getting back. And with the A to F bundle, 
in terms of wakefulness, we're realizing with you know great research that's been done in Denmark and many other places that um, probably intermittent sedation or very short courses of sedation are probably all that's needed for the majority of patients. I think it's also important to think when we're talking about this is like the majority of patients. I mean, you're always going to, in a busy 20-bed ICU, you're always going to have a day where one or two patients need deeper sedation for either, you know, ventilator um synchrony or or they're have an open abdomen or something's going on with the patient that day but it's important to separate those patients out it's probably less than 10 percent of the patients on 10 percent of the days right so most patients that could just be you know you don't need this continuous sedation and and so that's kind of what really led and then we we realized you know when i was having all these great discussions with dale needham and matthias eckerman as we were um you know really thinking about the messaging we wanted in this invited Lancet um, commentary, we realized that we should be really focusing on the problem, which is agitation and how to reverse and treat that rather than the sedation bit. So I think we were kind of getting it wrong. And what we, you know, it there's a lot of causes for agitation. And we kind of felt that um, bedside nurses and the whole ICU team, you know, working together, weren't really thinking about the um, the common causes of agitation and treating that, and usually most of the um, when you you know kind of go through our table, many of the common causes of agitation are you know it's really non pharmacologic interventions that need to be used, or it's things that aren't really related to giving more sedation. So you know, for example. Patients can be really constipated in the ICU. This is just an example. And we know that, you know, we try to use bowel protocols, but we don't really aggressively use them. So you could have a patient that hasn't had a bowel movement for three days, and they just might have such a abdominal discomfort, but they can't really communicate that. And they, they could just be agitated from that, right? They could be really frustrated that like a family member hasn't arrived that day. No, they're probably just really frustrated for still being intubated. Um, we don't use the right communication strategies in intubated patients, I think, to communicate, especially if families aren't around, and we found that in COVID. And then there's, you know, language issues. There's many patients that don't speak English. So, I mean, there's just a whole list of things that um, could be causing the agitation in these patients. And if you systematically think about that and treat that, it's amazing how you can, you know, safely manage the patient and treat them, treat their agitation, and you don't really need to give any sedation, sedating medications at all. So um, that was so validating to read in your article, because that's been something that I've been on my soapbox here on the podcast for a long time. I haven't worked in an awake and walk in ICU where hardly anyone was sedated. That's where I started. I never had considered that sedation would automatically be given upon intubation until I worked outside that ICU. Um, but when I looked into the research, um, you know, there's Dr. Strom's uh, study looking at no sedation. There are a few things out there, but there's not a lot of clear communication saying straight point blank. Mechanical ventilation is not an indication for sedation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, you know, the actual intubation probably you need to be, mm -hmm. but that's, only, that's RSI for right. most patients. And it it's only... For an hour and then then you kind of wake up the patients and you just need to evaluate them but we don't usually give the patient a chance post intubation to, to declare themselves and figure out what they're about people don't know a lot of the things if they've chronically been taking benzodiazepines or opioids or if they have a lot of anxiety um 
baseline, you know, and it takes a while to collect all that data from any patient. So that's, I think, another problem too. We don't always know a lot about the patient. And and we don't give the patient a chance to provide that information to us. They exactly. can do their own med recs. They can do lots of things. Usually if we allow them to be free of delirium right after um, intubation and throughout their course on the ventilator, but we deprive nurses, especially of that experience. And then we expect to unmask that delirium or unmask that agitation that they're having. But I love that in this article, it wasn't just, we know sedation is dangerous. It's not needed on every patient of ventilator, but you guys took it a step further and said, here's some alternative tools to use. Instead of having to run back and mask the agitation that you're seeing, let's really treat it. No, you're absolutely right. And I think it's, I think the other thing that's really important, which the ADF bundle does, and particularly the C um, component, which is choice of medications. And it's not necessarily, you know, what sedate that this patient needs sedation, their whole ICU stays, so are we going to use, say, dexmedetomidine or propofol? It's really, it's really looking each day at a minimum, but even more often, like it should be thought about on afternoon rounds. What does the patient need these? When I and when I talk about medications, I really I'm talking about um, you know, sort of like psychoactive medications, which is a broader group of medications than sedatives. So this would include opioids, would include, you know, other like um, you know, antipsychotics, and basically any drug that has a sedating effect. So that could be a, a larger group because we use these quite liberally in our patients. And I think it's 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 so easy to add on these medications and. Rarely do we really try to aggressively take them off. And I think that's a big role for, you know, critical care pharmacists, but the whole interprofessional team is to continuously question why are these medications being given? And there's lots of practical strategies you can use. I think the big thing is, is, you know, um, really figuring out the patient's level of pain, um, aggressively using, you know, non-opioid analgesics, you know, so acetaminophen, I mean, all these basic medications, um, you know, for, you know, patients with major surgery, or major pain, you know, maybe just very low dose ketamine might be useful for a couple of days, but it's really low dose. So we end up using ketamine at sky high doses and, yes. and you see a lot of delirium and we're not really using ketamine. We're trying to use it as a sedative. And it's, it's really, to me, most of the evidence is using it at very low infusion doses for for pain. Um, you know, opioids to me are really nasty, and they don't really work very well. They have a lot of side effects. Um, you know, I published recently a large analysis in the Blue Journal, really showing the strong association between opioids and delirium. And I think it's important that we don't, you know, kind of circling back to sedation, that we don't think about. Um, opioids as an analgesic sedation so we're giving opioids for sedation i think opioids can be very useful for helping you know acute pain because people do have pain and but again most of the times it should really be boluses i you know i always try to get patients away from you know clinicians from using a continuous infusion because that kind of goes in autopilot you know, also opioids have patients become, can become quite tolerant to opioids. Um, they can develop chronic pain syndromes. And then, you know, there's always a risk. We still do. There's lots of data showing how long patients continue on opioids after they leave the ICU or the hospital. So, you know, once we start it, we have to make sure there's plans to stop these drugs, you know, hopefully daily, but bef- 
for sure there's a plan before they leave the ICU. So opioids are kind of nasty. I think the other thing that we also need to do is, you know, if someone has a single period of acute agitation and they need something now to control the patient, you never know, right? There's these things. I always make sure that these patients have a low dose amidazolam ordered PRN. And so really using PRNs. And so I'd rather have a patient with, say, you know, one to two milligrams IV push Q4H or Q6H of midazolam and not have the patient on a propofol drip. So the nurse knows that if the patient has an acute agitated event, they can give a little push of midazolam, figure out using our, um, you know, our Lancet agitation algorithm, figure out, well, what can be reversed? What can you do? Because it buys a little time. And then I'm um, thinking about what the strategy is. I mean, maybe there could be a, a small group of patients that do need to go back on continuous sedation, but usually not. And and I think people are really paranoid that, oh, we can't ever give a milligram of, of midazolam in, in the ICU. But yes, I'm not saying we should be using infusions or regularly giving it scheduled. But it, in these acute situations, it can really be, you know, a kind of a life-saving um, strategy for nurses to deliver once in, you know, once every two or three days, or if there's like some procedural acute, or even procedural, the exactly. Pre-op, and, like things like yeah. that. That's, and it that's, makes nurses feel more comfortable with right. um, avoiding the propofol going. So I think that's really, really important. And then I think the other thing is, is we need to, we can be really aggressive and it doesn't mean we have to stop everything. Let's try decreasing things by 50% and see what happens. And I'm a... If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. I'm working with a um, Mass General Brigham affiliated community hospital, and they're actually pretty good with the ADF bundle. And but what they found is that they, at night, they really end up ramping up a lot of their sedation and psychoactive medication. So they're using a lot of antipsychotics, patients have delirium, all kinds of things. It's not just them. That's a very shared practice throughout the community. Yeah, it is. And and so we actually developed a whole nocturnal protocol because we found that um, the things at night it's a little bit different because people are very focused on sleep. We have a non-pharmacologic sleep protocol that's kind of, you know, quiet time and um, noise and offering eye masks for light and stuff. But we we found that patients were still getting far too much sedation at night and because they wanted patients to sleep. And of course, you know, um, sedation's not it, sleep. It's sleep. It's absolutely not. If you put any EG on patients, it's completely different. It's really quite disorganized. Um, sedation and it, it's not it's very disorganized sleep and we're depriving and so, them of sleep of absolutely sleep. it's yeah. better and then you know obviously some of the other things that we're really looking at are circadian rhythm 
things in the daytime, like bright light. Wakefulness is really important. Um, being upright. You know, being upright, mobilization and wakefulness is, so if you're wakeful, it you can soak in the light. And it, these are all the big, they call them zeitgeivers that really drive your circadian rhythm. And if you can maintain patients with some bright light, wakeful allowing them you know there's no problem allowing them to nap for an hour or two depending on the patient i mean that's kind of reasonable and then you know make sure you're mobilizing them it's amazing how this circadian rhythm um, retrains itself and they get back on a normal schedule and they sleep much much better so these are some of the kind of the more new innovative things but i think getting back to the basics it's having that pharmacist and the team thinking about every drug why are we using it both daytime and nighttime and um, making sure nurses feel comfortable about not using the drug or at least having a prn if if there's an unexpected situation where they don't have anything ordered because i think that could be bothersome especially at night and then i think the other thing is you know if we do find some of these medications need to be chronically used getting them off ivs and so using the gut um you know most patients if they're tolerating tube feeds you could start putting down some of these medications almost all of them through um you know with the exception of things like ketamine stuff through their um gut and that's a great way to transition them out of the icu faster Right. And even, you know, talking about agitation, I've loved low dose clonopin down the feeding tube. And mm-hmm. if they have hyperactive delirium or it's just real anxiety, um, that does need to be treated. And so we can help, you know, chemically restrain them a little bit without sedating them. And you, you in that article, you define sedation as administration of sedating medication to impair consciousness. Right. So when I talk about sedation on the podcast, that it really is what I'm, what I mean. You know, it's not that sedation is always bad, but when we sedate patients, it's usually to alter their consciousness. But we can use sedation without impairing their consciousness. Absolutely. And that's really important. And if you do need to give some more aggressive sedation temporarily, you should only be impairing their consciousness at, you know, temporarily and allowing them to have all this time to engage with their family and clinicians and what are some of those indications? I mean, when we talk about impairing consciousness right now, throughout the community as a standard, that usually happens upon intubation without even questioning whether or not it's necessary. So if we're going to question whether or not sedation is necessary, when is sedation to impair consciousness necessary? What are some examples? Yeah, I think um, I think patients that, um, you know, are are not tolerating the ventilator you know, or there's dyskinesia where you've made ventilator adjustments, you've maybe tried giving a bolus of an opioid and you just can't, you know, you can't match, you know, their inspiratory and expiratory drive and, and they're just not tolerating the ventilator, but there's a lot of steps that should be done. Right. Right. Well, you know, that can be from a lot of reasons. Right? A lot of reasons. Absolutely. So yeah. there's a lot of steps that should be done before you say they need a deep, deeper sedation. Um, and sometimes, you know, you might give them a bolus of, person and maybe you need to give a single bolus of a neuromuscular blocker as you make all these adjustments but again that's only an hour or two it's not a it's not a permanent thing i think um i think procedures as you alluded to is really important um there's painful procedures and there's procedures that are you know pain's complex it's 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 related to arousal the actual pain stimulus at the setting. So I think people need to use a multimodal approach well before they're doing what, like putting in a chest tube or doing a bedside surgical procedure. People have a lot of variability. I mean, some patients could just lie there while a central line's being in and other patients, you know, they're just gonna 
you know, able to do it yeah and so you need to provide some more sedation then but then again it's using more of a multimodal approach um again i think patients you know in our in the pad is guidelines that i chaired we asked we had patients and families really involved in the guidelines and you know we did have our patient um who was like i was just tired that they were always trying to keep me awake every single day and they never asked me if i ever wanted a little break and if i was frustrated because he had been ventilated with ARDS at Johns Hopkins for about 2 weeks and so we have one little statement in there like you know ask the patient what level of sedation they want you know as i said at the beginning you know people we've had people with laptops write do not sedate me uh-huh yep and then okay. but he but he was like he wished someone asked him because he actually there was one afternoon he was very very frustrated and he would have liked to have been stayed a little bit more just temporarily and when we sedate patients for um surgery for a few hours yeah they don't report the same hallucinations trauma they really don't develop that level of delirium um it's when sedation goes on i mean sedation slash sleep deprivation goes on for days to weeks when we really start to be in a dangerous zone. Well, that's right. And I think it's ways, and I think it's sort of the medications we have, like they're all fairly short acting, like dexmentomidine, the benzodiazepines, like if we get our profile for giving them intravenously, even opioids. So we have this idea, well, we wouldn't just give a bolus, we'd want to continue it longer because this could come up again and be a problem. I think that's an issue. I think there's some new strategies, you know, either here or coming down the pipeline that are going to be helpful too. Um, you know, there's a new formulation, a sublingual formulation of dexmedetomidine. It's not indicated for the ICU, but I mean, it could be easily used in the ICU and it's a little patch that lasts for about four hours. It's, it's only, it's like, I think it's 180 micrograms. So the brand name is Okami and, you know, that could be a strategy for patients that are, you know, a little bit agitated. They want to be chilled out, but they don't need a dexmedetomidine. Um, infusion because sometimes we have trouble with these patients getting them off IV dexmentomony and getting them to the floor because they're agitating they're withdrawing and all of these things um you know i'm involved in a uh, multi-center study here in the united states using inhaled isoflurane for sedation mm -hmm. and our nurses really like it because it's instant on and instant off and so we're actually able to you know turn it off and the patients wake up right away and and then if they need it, we could just turn it on and they're hooked up. It's just a rebreathing device. Um, and it's a syringe pump that delivers the isoflurane. And does so it cause the same levels of delirium? Do you know yet? Well, we're well, that's what we're studying right now. We think it could be lower. Certainly inhaled um, gases in the OR are associated with reduced postoperative delirium. And so, you know, our nurses have actually kind of liked that because they can do much more assessment, just sedate the patients when they need it and then wake them up and it's like it's broke breathe off so quickly so that's it there's you know some interesting strategies that i think are more titratable because i think we're going to get to the point with all the great work you're doing and i guess all of us are doing in the critical care community is we're going to get to the point where yes we are going to have days where patients do need some sedation and what are we going to use and i think gone are the days where we are using propofol infusions and dex infusions we need short act short onset short offset um, medications that don't you know have the um prolonged effects and the effects on cognition. And if you are going to interrupt consciousness, it's just a very brief, you know, period. Oh, it'd be amazing to have that kind of synergy between a change in culture, true master mm -hmm. to the CDF bundle, where we really expect patients to be awake, communicative, autonomous, mobile, 
unless there's an indication for sedation. And when there is an indication, it'd be really nice to have safer options that have are less damaging and are easier to use. Absolutely. Because it's hard. I mean, as a nurse, I experienced that when I was a travel nurse, it's hard when you start sedation and then it goes on for a few days, then taking it off is a whole roller coaster. And that's one of our biggest barriers. And that's what people imagine when I say awake and walking, I see you. They imagine what they see when you turn sedation off after a few right. days. They imagine that patients are coming out thrashing, agitated, delirious. But if we really mastered what you guys were talking about in your recent article, that sedation is not necessary for every patient on a ventilator, and rather it should be the exception. And here's some alternative strategies. If we really mastered that one principle, the rest of the bundle, I think, would be much more attainable. We could really assess for pain. Families could actually be engaged. Patients would be ready to mobilize. We'd really prevent and treat delirium. Um, it, and then breathing and awakening trials would be, I mean, awakening trials especially would be in the minority. Well, absolutely. Because we're just, we're, yeah, we're setting ourselves up for failure because we're creating this oversedated monster and we're always fighting that when we don't need to. And we're not, as you said, we're not creating the cause in most cases. So yeah, there's, it's just a whole mindset and it really takes, it's the whole team that needs to be thinking about this. And, you know, a lot of it starts um, with the physicians, you know, you need a, you know, you need, the, you need the attending leader to make it okay to do this. And at a teaching hospital, this goes all the way down from the fellows to medical students that this is the way and that's going to change practice. And it's okay to, and talking about experiences and what's happening. And I think, you know, some of these interventions happen in, you know, the morning, um, they should happen in the morning, but sometimes nurses aren't even on bedside rounds. So we're not talking about the symptoms patients have, like we might know what their current RAS score is, or if they, if their most recent, you know, CAM is positive or negative, but we don't really know about the symptoms of what patients are experiencing in their care. And we just quickly skip over all these medications. And then if we do try to make a change, often they're not really firmly evaluated. And I know that's kind of with this, you know, with this community hospital project is really making sure what's talked about in the morning continues on in the afternoon and then continues on throughout the night. And that's, that's a big transition that's important. And physicians have to really support that. Absolutely. Can you imagine how powerful it would be if physicians were all very well trained in delirium in the ABCDF bundle? And when it comes to the C, that they took stewardship over that as they're the ones writing the orders or the APPs. And yeah. if they asked, does this patient have an indication for sedation? If that's what the C really meant to our community, but I think that's probably what it was intended to be, not just to use benzos or not. <laughs> Uh, you're absolutely right. It's, well, it's more use versus choice. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. This is it actually needed? But if physicians really took stewardship over that, and if pharmacists felt comfortable asking, does this patient still have an indication for sedation? If nurses were asking themselves that every every shift or throughout the shift, um, does this patient still have an indication for sedation? I mean, it would just turn this around and the whole bundle would be much more feasible. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, nurses um, are amazing. Um, but they're a very heterogeneous group, at least the nurses I've always worked with and done research with and practice clinically with. And, you know, you there's going to be nurses that are afraid of change and they're always afraid of bad outcomes. And then there's nurses that are, you know, real. They're like, absolutely, this patient doesn't need sedation. They're going to they're be pushing the team 
to be more wakeful and just, or just do it on their own and realize. But I think what we need is, you know, the, the physicians and rest of the team have to give the nurses more support yes. for this and say, it's okay. Um, realizing, you know, there could be something that happens, you know, it, if you have a patient, um, it shouldn't, especially if you mobilize them and, and are really looking for things, but you know, there is probably a risk if someone has a RASA minus one that, you know, they could self-activate or pull out a line but that's probably okay. You know, it's it's not the end of the world in most patients. I mean, a lot of times you don't even need to reintubate the patient. And if they need the line, maybe they didn't even still really need the central line. You know, all these things kind of go hand in hand. And, and that's okay because yeah. the, you're, it's a small risk. But the benefit is that you have this awake patient that can be mobilized and probably have reduced delirium and be potentially do better on SCTs. And I would defer to, I think, episode 117 on unplanned extubations, where I break down the research behind that, showing that the real risk lies in the sedation and immobility for most patients versus the unplanned extubations. But a team that really masters the ABCDF bundle, they understand that they're really weighing out the risk versus benefit before starting or continuing sedation. And they have a culture in which nurses are supported. In an ABCDF bundle, um, mastered unit this is discussed the risk versus benefits of sedation are are understood and discussed for each patient before starting or continuing sedation and they really support their nurses they don't see unplanned extubations as the worst case scenario that could ever happen i'd refer back to a couple episodes ago with dr bellucci he led Mm -hmm. his team as a physician to become a minimal to no sedation uh, unit and um, an unplanned extubation happened and the patient didn't have to be reintubated, but the nurse was so distraught. But the physician sat down with a nurse and said, look at their outcomes. They're not reintubated. They're not delirious. They're strong. They're going to discharge to the floor in the morning. They're, this is a total success. And it's because you did well with avoiding sedation. That's the kind of culture that needs to happen. Another podcast listener um, had a patient on high ventilator settings he was not delirious, but he had some um, psychopathology going on. He promised on the whiteboard, I won't self-extubate. The nurse managers were saying, sedate him, sedate him. And the nurse said, no, he does not need sedation. We need a sitter. And they wouldn't support her in that. So she went to go check on her other patient really quick and got the tube out. They reintubated him. He was fine. But she was about to get in so much trouble with her uh, management. And the attending came in and said, She's practicing better evidence-based medicine than the rest of us. She'd better not get any heat. Oh, so, good. So that's really good to have that. that that's you know, what needs to happen, right? Better. We need to be yeah. saying, okay, so he was fine. Um, but what was the circumstances? He should have had a sitter versus um, sedation. Sedation wasn't safe. And we need to support that nurse in making a good evidence-based practice and decision in that moment. So I hope that that's, as we really understand the bundle in this C, we find more liability in unnecessarily sedating patients than these other events that could happen that are less likely to happen if they're not sedated. Yeah. And you actually need a culture of, and you know, of, of patients being unarousable, deeply sedated when that's not the goal, that should actually be a never event. That's a, to me, that's a more important never event. It's so dangerous than um, an accidental device removal. Yes. In, in some instances, because that's kind of the really severe um, risks of sedation. So yeah, it's it's going to be interesting, you know, and there's a lot of research coming down the tube. I'm involved in a large um, North American study. The results aren't 
I don't know the results yet, but it was a a, ma- a large um, randomized study looking at twice daily versus once daily spontaneous breathing trials um, with or with, and then comparing um, TPs versus um, CPAP um, SPTs. And you know, I we hypothesize obviously that the more frequently you screen a lot of these patients twice daily, that you're going to lead to you know, unless they obviously don't meet the SPT screen, they um, potentially, you know, could be excavated less and there's all kinds of downstream effects of that. But if you have, if we're only focusing on this morning wakefulness and rest of the day, we're not, you might not be able to deliver an intervention like that, which could be hugely beneficial to patients. Especially when a lot of times these SATs are happening at five in the morning with one lone nurse, no family, no PT, no OT, OT, to reevaluate later and say, now that we have the gang together, Let's, let's do try another one. Let's look at you know this article with the, all these tools provided to treat the agitation if we see it as we do in awakening trial. Um, Brenda Pun says in that 2019 APCDF bundle study that the objective of the bundle is to have patients that are more awake, um, awake, um, engaged, interactive, communicative, um, mm-hmm. physically active in order to facilitate patient autonomy and the ability to express unmet physical and emotional needs. So if that was like our guiding North star <laughs> when we're navigating station practices, then you're right. It would be a never to hardly ever event that someone would be consciously impaired. You're absolutely right. No, you're, you're totally right. And you know, and I think that, you know, from that, um, 2019 study, which I was involved with the, um, you know, what a really important message too is that even if you do some of this with the ADF bundle, um, you're still going to really improve outcome, and it's incremental. The more you do, the better the outcome of the patient is. And I think it's, um, you know, I worked with Brenda and Joanna Stallings and a few other people on kind of um, the, you know, a big part of the IC liberation effort with the bundle was was role modeling and really focusing on team dynamics and how people communicate with each other and responsibilities and who does what and how you run rounds. And, you know, I think sometimes our current rounding structure leaves a little bit less desired. Um, for example, like I do a lot of teaching with girl care pharmacists and, you know, yeah, they can talk about the list of the sedating, the neuroactive medications and the sedation they're on, but, you know, that pharmacist, they have time while they're rounding and in between things, they could do their own RAS scores and they could do some patient evaluation and, you know, they could talk to the nurse, like, you know, the, and, and so they could be another um, nudging point, I guess I could say about when they see that they could do a RAS score, they could see where it's at, that it's too deep and like challenge the nurse, like, why are we, why are we doing this? And cause they're a consistent presence and it doesn't have to be this, you know, combative or combative or behind the scenes and trying to get people in trouble. But it's just it's just these additional nudges to get people to think about ways of better caring for the patients on a 24-7 basis. It's a safety net. When we know this is a yeah. high risk intervention and medication, we'd better be doing safety nets. And I see the RAS as kind of like a trough. Mm-hmm. So pharmacists saw sedation management or took stewardship over sedation like they do antibiotic stewardship. One, they would never let us give vancomycin without an indication. Of course. They would say, why is that ordered? Does, is it still needed? What are the levels? So with sedation, they should be doing the same. Why is it ordered? Is it still needed? And what are the levels? And so I think it's an excellent proposal. I like to hear it from you rather than me. Um, I've mentioned this on, on site. And I train pharmacists on the RAS. 
so that they can go in. But it'd be nice to have a systematic check. So everyone has an expectation. The pharmacist is going to pop their heads in, assess the patient themselves, and make sure that the rash is within a safe parameter, just like a vancomycin trough. You're absolutely right. Yep, absolutely. I love it. Anything else you would share with the ICU community? No, I think less is more and that, you know, these drugs all have really serious side effects and some are some are predictable. And, you know, these are widely used drugs. Some of them aren't. And um, we're still not really sure the response to patients. It's quite varied between different patients. Uh, the elderly are very, very sensitive. And, you know, if you see a patient with Pris, um, you know, that's, we use a lot of profiles still, and it happens in, you know, one to 2% of patients. And, you know, so there's some serious things that can happen with these agents that people just assume while well, they're safe and they're easy to use. And, you know, I, I, I just think, you know, the, the low, the decreased level of consciousness and all the other, you know, expected and unexpected side effects of these agents accumulate over time. And these are just, to me, they're just such high risk medications, anything that's psychoactive that affects the brain on so many levels. And they, you, as you've already kind of mentioned, you just need a really good documented reason, you know, each day or each 12 hour, each shift about why are we using these and why are we using them at the current dose that we're um, using them at. And, and, and even each time it's ordered, if, if the provider has to say, now the drop down box, just like we do for an antibiotic. What is the indication and mechanical ventilation? It should be the evidence is not what the indications. No, I know we make it too easy. And I love that you said in that article, a common practice in ICU, which is sedation due to traditions of clinical teaching and other reasons that are not evidence-based and not necessarily patient-centered. And the patient-centeredness is a big thing. Absolutely. And that's what the ABCD of Bundle is about. And true mastery of C will mean that we actually question whether or not it's needed, and then have a good stewardship from there. Absolutely. And then I think we need to talk about the family too, and um, which we've touched on. And, you know, families should be demanding, like, why, like, they have this concept that, oh, they're sick, so they need to be in this medically induced coma, which I think really reared its ugly head during COVID. But, you know, if families are visiting, and they can't engage at all with their loved one, they should be demanding an answer from the nurse and the team about why is, why is this, why is this necessary? What if we told families before intubation or before starting sedation? So we should say, here are the risks of being sedated, maybe to the patient. And I guess give them an option, even though increasing mortality shouldn't necessarily be an option <laughs> ever. Right. But if sedation is necessary, maybe for that moment, we do need to be clear and say, this medication comes with these risks and repercussions. If the family understands that, then they're going to be on them every day saying, is it still needed? Can we turn it off now? Like I'm worried about a brain injury. I'm worried about death. They can, they can be part of that discussion and they're going to be the ones that care about the long-term outcomes the most. You're absolutely right. And I think it's important for families to be aware that, um, you know, the memories that patients have during their ICU stay are really important. They're protective of delirium and, you know, obviously they're, they're, you know, it's, it's controversial, but it, it, it absolutely is not going to increase PTSD. And, um, and I think the key thing is that is, is separating sedation from comfort. And I think families really want to make sure their loved ones are comfortable. That's the key thing. And I think they sort of feel, well, comfort is part of this deep sedation and this unarousability, but I think it's really important to separate it out. We are going to keep them comfortable. And 
it, through a combination of, of non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic strategies, but there's no real reason to keep them deeply sedated. And I think if you separate that out, it helps families process it and realize the importance. The teams first need to understand that in order to educate, right? When the teams are believing and calling sedation to be sleep, right, it makes that very conflicting for loved ones. So I think good delirium education for clinicians can lead to better education for families and improved practices all around. Thank you so much, Dr. Devlin, for sharing this expertise. Thanks for all of your research, your leadership throughout the community. And I look forward to your upcoming studies. Okay. Thanks very much, Kelly. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts, please check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com.